are now listening to Mostly Mistakes. All right, ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Mostly Mistakes. Dave, I know you're going to laugh at me because I say this every single time, but I am pumped for today's guest. We're joined today by Lisa Bougie. Lisa is an absolute goat in the consumer goods sector. Uh, she's led the growth and expansion of some really incredible brands, including Stitch Fix, Nike, Patagonia, and Gap. Most recently, Lisa was at Stitch Fix, where she served as a general manager and joined Stitch Fix uh, back in 2013 for the opportunity to partner with the company's founder to create the world's first personalized fashion e-commerce service and eventually executed a successful IPO, which in due to large part was you know, the success of Lisa and her team. Lisa, she currently serves on four private boards as an independent director. That's at Eileen Fisher, Cora, and Bulletin. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. We are honored to have you. Thanks so much, Jono and David. I'm stoked to be here with you today. So Lisa, I guess to start, if you don't mind, just like give the listeners some context to your background, the work that you've done over the years. For sure. Well, thank you for the kind introduction. I think, you know, the overview of my career, if in a couple sentences, is that I feel incredibly fortunate to have spent the, the vast majority of my professional life building brands and businesses through kind of at their time, disruptive retail models. The companies of which you've already articulated, Gap, Patagonia, Stitch Fix, and Nike, were absolute game changers kind of in their moment. And I was able to take away superpowers from each of those experiences. Three and a half years ago, actually almost four, I left my role at Stitch Fix as general manager of the women's business, and I did so with the intention to create a portfolio of founders, brands, and businesses that I would support in a multitude of ways. And so the work that I do today is particularly satisfying in the sense that it allows me to tap into all of the experience that I've had as an operator and, and kind of pay it forward. So... The way that I think about the work that I do today is I engage in, in three ways, lead, give, and invest. So from a leadership perspective, that's board work and strategic advising. From a giving standpoint, that's teaching. I do some teaching at Santa Clara University and also mentoring. And investing is just that. I do some direct investments, generally seed stage. But what ties those three forms of engagement together or unifies them is that I'm working exclusively in support of wellness, climate action, and social justice. So my filter for consideration as opportunities present themselves today is the question as to whether or not the, the company and the founder has a mission orientation at minimum toward one of those things. Or perhaps the company wasn't born with that DNA, but realizes that they have important work to do. And so in doing so, I, I find the work that I do in this moment particularly gratifying because it not only indeed taps into my vast experience as an operator, but ultimately I'd like to believe that kind of the sum of all of my efforts is greater than kind of every individual engagement in the sense of working toward and with people that care about the same things that I do from a values and passion perspective. Thank you. Lisa, so one thing that I guess that I'm curious to hear as you made this transition from operator, leader within you know an entity itself, failure in, in being a, a team member in that regard is one thing. I guess, how do you think about failure in the new capacity? that you work with businesses, that you partner with founders, that you partner with these companies? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting because one of the four most critical roles as a board director is that of risk mitigation. In other words, 
helping founders and companies see around the corner to identify kind of pending or potential risks well in advance enough to not only identify them, but to translate them into opportunities. And so in reflecting upon our conversation today, it, it, it occurred to me that so much of what I do today is actually paying forward the things that I've learned by way of mistakes in the past to help others avoid them as they are growing and leading their businesses. And when you think about risk mitigation, you know, there's a certain level of risk, obviously, that you're willing to take, knowing that failure is an option. I, I guess, like, how do you navigate that spectrum of knowing, like, you know what, this is too much of a risk, and this is too grave of a failure, that it doesn't warn us, you know, taking this leap, or you know what, despite these concerns, despite these risks, let's go out and let's, you know, make this jump, or let's actually make an effort here. Yeah. I mean, there's no silver bullet, uh, of course, but I would say that um, I'm a big fan of swift and decisive actions. And so when, when a situation presents itself that requires decisiveness, one of the things that I find myself doing often as a board director and specifically as an independent director, which we can talk about that if, if you're interested in terms of why that may be different, is helping to coach founders and CEOs through these moments to kind of do that really quick and efficient evaluation of pros and cons, and then with confidence stepping into that decision. More of a personal question. I'm curious because you don't see a lot of female people on, on boards or strategic advisors. So growing up, did you always think that you would be in the position that you're at now? And then second part of that is what were some mistakes as you were growing in your career that you went through on the path to become being a director? And yeah. Strategic okay. Advisor. Well, let me first comment on the fact that you're right. There are. It's certainly not an equitable situation whereby you know we can talk about just gender for a second because that's what you spoke to. It's true that the boardroom is not filled with fifty percent women around the table, but fortunately that is changing. In fact, in the in the course of the last four years. Four years ago, about 15.5% of all board seats were filled by women in the S&P 500. And, and today, that's over 20%, I believe. So we have some good momentum. But to answer your question, you know, I feel so fortunate. Both of my grandmothers, well, first off, are still alive today. They're 96 and they happen wow. to both live in Portland. Wow, and special. they are, it is special. They are fierce in their own rights. Both worked, you know, kind of well into their 70s. But one of them in particular was a bit of a real estate tycoon in the 70s. She uh, had her own real estate, residential real estate company and lived in, in my town. And I had the benefit of seeing her in action and even sometimes helping her in her office. And I remember so visit vividly. And in fact, we had a family Zoom for her 96th birthday last month. And I told the story of one time, I remember, I think I was about 10 or 11, and I was in her office helping her. And she said to me, you are so good at following directions and you're so you're accurate. I don't recall the specific feedback, but certainly it was affirming feedback. And she said to me, you would make a great CEO one day. Perfect. perfect now, perfect. I didn't even know what a CEO was at that age. But you know what? That planted the seed of possibility. My other grandmother came from Italian descent. And she, as well as my mother, as well as I, in our younger years, before we could work with a work permit, made money picking berries in rural Oregon. I got thrown onto a berry bus at five in the morning in the summers, beginning at 10 years old. And from those early experiences of 
kind of learning work ethic and setting goals in the summer to, you know, okay, what did I want to do with this money? I was able to kind of quickly put together this reality of I can set a goal, I can work hard, I can achieve things. And if I think about the synthesis of kind of the gift of one grandmother planting a seed of possibility as a, as a businesswoman and the other grandmother planting the seed of possibility through kind of lineage, I suppose, and work ethic. Wow, those are pretty strong gifts to give a young girl. And I feel kind of emotional just thinking about that. So yeah, those were really important roots that helped me to have confidence at a really young age and believe in my potential to do whatever I wanted. Lisa, thank you for sharing that. I think for me, there's two significant takeaways. The first being the importance of early affirmations of our, our limitless potential uh, at a young age and really how that helps shape our own you know, self-image and perception of ourselves. The second being you understanding the value or the, the importance of hard work. And I, I think, you know, us as a society, we have a very naive sense of what success uh, is or, or what it takes to get there. Um, you know, we, we see all of these image of, you know, quote unquote, successful people, but that, you know, success is, is really only the tip of the iceberg. And there is so much groundwork that it took for those people to get there. Um, again, I, I just love that you were able to get both of those uh, at, at such a young age. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. The, the things that I pulled away from that was it was so good to hear the different perspectives that you got on each side of your, of your family. So that was really good to hear. And also, uh, to Jono's point, it is so important to speak power and speak positive affirmation into people at a, at a young age. I mean, I'm glad you had got to experience that. And, and obviously it, it helped tremendously and helped you on your path to success. So thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you now that you've, we've kind of reflected on, on the past, what's your stance on failure? Why do you believe that it may be important? You know, I, there's a phrase that I love and it is, you can't read the label when you're inside the jar. And as I prepared for our conversation today, one of the gifts that you've, you gave me is that of introspection and, and getting outside of the jar. And so as I started to, to think about this notion of failure, the, the value for me really lies in, the, in a mindset. And that mindset is that failure allows for our full potential. Without failure, we actually can't adequately recognize success. But of course, the resilience, the grit, and ultimately the growth that comes with failure helps us each to optimize our full potential. And going back to the family theme... I'm a Virgo, not to get too like woo-woo on you guys, but like I definitely play into the Virgo stereotype and 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 one of the Virgo stereotypes is perfectionism. So like failure is not it doesn't come easily for me. It doesn't come easily for we'll talk about kind of short-term memory in a second here, but it doesn't come easy. I, I want to do things well. I want to do things right. And and getting outside the jar and reflecting on some of my earliest kind of experiences of failure, I recalled that, you know, my parents, my mom specifically in high school, when I was a senior in high school, she made me get a B in calculus. I was a straight A student. I was about to like be valedictorian or whatever. She made me get a B my last semester of high school in calculus because she wanted me to know that life would be fine and I would be okay if my report card was less than perfect. perfect. And so what happened as a result of that? I mean, yeah, sure, of course, life went on and I did learn that lesson. 
But the other thing is playing a little bit looser and getting that B allowed me to experience other things. My, you know, as a senior in high school, probably have more fun. So anyway, not only can we benefit from the specific learnings of failure, but I think, you know, playing loose is important. Playing loose is definitely important. And that, I'm going to make my son do that if he becomes a, a, a straight A student. I love, love, love that idea. And it's going to be very applicable to my son because he's also a Virgo. He's five months old right now. So thank you for, for giving me a heads up. Right on, right on. What, what, <laughs> what date? September what? September 4th. Okay, on um, the 6th, on the 6th. Yeah. So I didn't walk into this conversation thinking I was going to get parenting advice, but hey, here we are. So thank you for that. And then I want to switch switch gears a, a little bit and talk about failure at the highest level when you're advising a large organization or advising a company. What does failure even look like for a board of directors or a strategic advisor? The holy grail of measure for any board really is to optimize the value of a company. Um, and that is not, by the way, and I feel very passionate about this topic, just for shareholders. It's for all stakeholders, right? So part of the reason that I do what I do is that I believe the world needs powerful examples of responsible business. And responsible business means minding all stakeholders. In any event, so what does that actually look like? We talked a little bit about kind of risk mitigation. And risk can come in so many forms for a company, right? There can be cyber risk. There can be legal risk. There can be governance risk. There can be, you know, customer experience risks. The list goes on and on and on. And from a fiduciary responsibility, I mean, this is maybe a little more technical, but ultimately the fiduciary responsibility of the board is to have a what's called a duty of loyalty and a duty of care. And so basically what that means is duty of care is like kind of give a shit and pay attention. <laughs> and duty of, uh, of loyalty is um, do right by the company, like you're tasked with doing right by the company. And so it's a really delicate balancing act, right? Because you have to think about then the multitude of stakeholders that as a board one needs to pay attention to in order to do all of those things simultaneously. Many of the companies that I work with are venture-backed and early stage. So there's another component to, to success in those companies that comes around fundraising, you know, which as an independent director is not my direct responsibility, of course, but that's another constituency, of course, is kind of where's the capital coming from? And so how do you take care of to everybody in that way? I'm thinking through some examples that of failure that have happened recently. It's a little tricky because a lot is confidential at the board level. 100% get that. We recently had a cyber incident of one of the companies that I work with, and it was a ransomware attack. And it was a situation that the company had not been through before. It was a situation that, frankly, the vulnerability happened because of some internal process. Fortunately, the breach was not particularly acute. So in terms of the damage done, it was well contained. But that was a situation where it could have 100% been avoided. The incident occurred because of an internal practice. And so, yeah, there was failure on the company's part. And if I look from the board's perspective, was there failure there too? Probably. We probably didn't ask all the right questions relative to evaluating the cyber risk of the company. And, you know, we got lucky in that case. We got lucky because the damage was super minimal. But hey, like, we can, I'm sure, probably rattle off lots of different instances where other companies haven't been so lucky. So the stakes are high. So Lisa, what do you feel is the most important aspect of feeling? I mean, learning from it, 
and translating the failure into the next opportunity. In fact, as Jono and I were, were chatting a few weeks ago, I shared with him, when I was thinking about my failures, certainly I've had countless, and yet it was hard for me to instantly recall them. And it took me a minute to realize that the reason for that is not because they haven't happened, of course they have, but because I'm so adept and habituated at moving from failure to opportunity that I actually forget the failures. And, and, and so there's probably something for me to be learned there. But in terms of how to play that forward to others, I do think the notion of having a short-term memory, do not to dwell on your failures, but rather quickly translate. There's a phrase that a dear mentor of mine shared with me many years ago, which is, you can visit Pity City, but you can't live there. And that to me, kind of envelops the essence of this idea of, okay, you know, fail fast, learn, move on. One of the things that that I am aware of about myself is I do that, but those that I lead don't always do that as, you know, as briskly, shall we say. And so I have learned to be the best leader and communicator that I can be in those moments, speaking the truth about kind of fact-based what's happened, what did we learn, and what are we doing with that information? Literally, like ushering the conversation in an explicit way, A, B, C, helps people over time to habituate them to that behavior as well. How do you, I think this can be applied to your time as, I guess, like a VP, a manager, a general manager, whatever it is, and even as a, a board member, how do you build or foster a culture that encourages failure? And I guess like identify when those individuals like have a growth or, or fixed mindset uh, yeah. and are even open to failure. Mm, such a great question. So a very dear friend, ex-colleague at Stitch Fix used to say, only the truth sounds like the truth. And when failure occurs at an individual level, at a team level, whatever it is, but in the workplace, what I have learned relative to creating a culture of kind of this mindset that I've just expressed is first off, speak the truth. We did this. And this happened and we failed at it. There is one time that I will never forget at, in the Stitch Fix days, it was early Stitch Fix days and the engineering team had just developed what was to be a really important new algorithm in the business and had spent quite some time in development of this algorithm. And it was an important milestone to the evolution of the business. And we rolled it out. It was a big deal. It was such a big deal. This sounds so startup-y, and I guess it was, but it was such a big deal. I think they like made t-shirts about the algorithm or something. <laughs> like there was some sort of swag. Like it was big. And so there was like a celebratory moment. And a few weeks later, when we had enough kind of statistically relevant data to understand the impact of the algorithm, we learned that it wasn't working. It was kind of like this, oh shit moment. And the head of the algorithm team, Eric Coulson, also my dear friend, came into our, our um, operating meeting and he just said it. The algorithm's not working. We have to cut bait and move on. Perfect. And it was, it could have been the elephant in the room that weighted the whole you know conversation down, but because he just spoke it, it was the most refreshing refreshing moment of both simultaneous vulnerability and strength. And that is how you create the culture that you asked about and that I'm referring to is certainly it doesn't have to be just leaders, but in this particular case, for a leader to have the courage to step in that this big thing that we even made t-shirts for <laughs> failed, <laughs> but it's going to be okay. I love that. The pity city line of living, uh, you can visit pity city, but you can't live there. That's fire. 
one. The other thing that you're you're drawing on the admission of of failure and the admission of a mistake is powerful, right? Because once you do that, you have the opportunity to actually visit Pity City and not live there. I think when people don't uh, have that admission, right? And if that person did not come in in front of the, the company and say, "Hey," algorithm's not working. We have to move on, right? A lot of people would have lived in Pity City for a while just because it wasn't being addressed. So that is a very, very strong point. Thank you for that. So one thing that I guess resonates with me is just, again, just echoing like the, the importance of owning up to a mistake and accountability. And I think, you know, to your point of building that culture, I think the other way that that's emphasized and reinforced is knowing that there weren't any, you know, consequences or repercussions to Eric, right? Or to his team. Right, you can address it. You can actually do a post mortem, figure out, hey, what can we learn from it? How do we change this algorithm? And again, like, how do we continue to to move forward? So, thank you for sharing that. Hey, let me just share one more thing in the event that it's helpful to listeners. Another practice that we implemented at Stitch Fix that helped to build upon this culture is something that we called a blameless post mortem. And that was simply the practice of everyone coming to the table, speaking their truth, and again, kind of moving through this process that I articulated earlier, which was, what was the problem? What did we learn? What do we do about it moving forward? But in a way that was completely fact-based, no kind of, you know, judgment in the sense of blame, as the name suggests, and that's another what I would consider a best practice to facilitate cultures that embody a growth mindset. Because I think what we're hitting on, actually, we haven't talked about is as an individual, we can embody a growth mindset. But it's quite another thing for an organization to embody a growth mindset, right? And it's important to recognize both of those things, right? Like the culture doesn't happen just because you have some individuals that have have growth mindsets. I used to teach, I still do actually as a board director and strategic advisor to the companies that want it. It's a training that helps people understand the difference between a victim mindset and a responsible mindset. And having the awareness, it's kind of like the pity city thing, but having an awareness that we each contribute to every single kind of instance that occurs in, in our lives, professionally or personally, right? And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, guess what? We had something to do with it. But oftentimes people get stuck in the victim mindset of like, oh, this happened to me and poor me. And if we can help people to step out of themselves, step out of the jar, right? And read the label and understand what was my, what was my ingredient in that situation, then we can get them to own it in a responsible way and there to learn and move on. So, Lisa, I, I want to shift a bit more to your like personal ups and downs, accomplishments, maybe some missteps, some failures, and I'm curious to hear. So, one thing that that you touched on is like in terms of the the importance of failure and it allows you to actually access your your full potential. And so thinking back to some of your failures, what's one failure that you don't regret? It was just such a valuable lesson that helped propel you as an individual contributor, as a manager, and just a teammate. Thanks for asking the question. There are a few, but the one that I would like to share is when I made the transition or the move from Nike to Stitch Fix, from as a leader, the requirements of the job were really different. I was going from leading an organization of thousands of people across many parts of the globe huge kind of scale, billion plus, very complex business with very mature leaders. Two, Stitch Fix, which at the time was in year two, a $10 million run rate, a team, my team was 14 people, as I recall. My direct, the average age of my direct reports was, I don't know, probably 25. 
And yet when I stepped into my role at Stitch Fix, it was so clear to me that that business would be a billion plus, that that business would reach the scale and and had every bit of possibility that was akin to that of which I had come from. And the way in, I, in which I stepped into my role as a leader was, in fact, viewing the business as a billion-dollar business, even though it wasn't, viewing my team as capable of all that I knew they could be, but maybe weren't in that moment. And it wasn't until about six months into my role there, I was actually about to have an offsite with my team at my house. It was still kind of that level of intimacy. I guess we're doing everything at our house these days. So that's like kind of normal now, but then it wasn't. And it was the night before I was at work in the city. It was the night before the offsite and the head of people and culture, she called, was like, Hey, can we chat? And she's like, I know you're having your offsite tomorrow. I need to make you aware of something. Your team is pretty miserable. And I was like, wait, what? What? She's like, yeah, they're feeling like, you know, the demands are too high. They're not feeling personally connected. And there was more. I was first off devastated because relationship is everything to me. But second off, my second thought was, okay, I'm having this offsite tomorrow. How am I going to, like, it was a strategic planning offsite. My team's showing up at my house. How am I going to turn this around in a way in which it's a good experience? And I, I am not a crier. I think I went home and cried that night for like, I mean, not forever because I didn't, you know, dwell, but I was like, kind of like, what am I going to do? Okay. And then, you know, moved on in the way that I would. Okay, cool. I'm going to use this moment to transform our relationship and set it straight so that we can do all the things that I know this company is capable of. Okay. So long story short, I ended up throwing the agenda in the garbage. We sat in the sun on my deck for two hours and I just opened it up and was like, okay, you guys, we need to have a clearing here. So I've ditched the agenda and I just want to open things up for feedback and and clear kind of direct conversation so that we can move forward. And it ended up being the most pivotal moment in our team's five years of working together because we just got into the real talk. So my mistake was that I did not adequately assess what I was walking into and how I needed a change as a leader. Of course, what the way that I did things at Nike wouldn't work at this other company, but I failed to recognize that. The reason, however, that I don't regret it, honestly, like, listen, I don't want to create pain for people, but it helped their excel, like their growth accelerate. It helped the business accelerate, and fortunately, thanks to candor. We were able to write the ship, get it all out and fortify our relationship in a way that actually would have never happened had we not had that moment. I love that. I think that the theme from that is the importance of feedback, right? Your peer came to you and gave you that direct feedback and made you aware of the situation. You then took it and you could have went and said like, oh, I'm going to take this one ear out the other, but you actually actioned upon it and then created the space for feedback for your team. So my question is, what do you think the costs would have been if you would have taken that feedback from your peer of like, hey, your team is not feeling good, and you know you didn't action upon that feedback? What would have been the you know some of the business-related costs to that? I do not mean this in a dramatic or in hyperbole manner, but honest to goodness, I don't think I would have made it in that job. That my direct reports had been there longer than me. They had a you know a lot of loyalty, a lot of credibility. Not that I didn't. I mean, I did, but I think that I that I there would have been tissue rejection for me as the new organ. So on the flip side of that, uh, what's a mistake or or failure that was so significant looking back on? Uh, you know that that moving forward in your career you know that you'll uh, you'll never fall into that same trap again. 
So one of our principles at Stitch Fix from a hiring perspective was that it was always our goal to hire people better than ourselves. And I had a key role that I needed that I was hired needed to hire for. I had interviewed quite a lot of candidates and ultimately hired someone that I knew from my past that I had an existing relationship with. Even we could call her a friend. And I knew that she wanted to grow and evolve. That was one of her reasons to come to Stitch Fix. But I also, if I'm really honest with myself, I think that I also knew there were some potential deficits and I hired her anyway. It didn't work out. We ended up terminating the relationship and it also terminated our friendship. That was a really tough lesson. And I, I think in, I've listened to some other conversations that you've had. You noted a, a book that you read that was titled, I think it was Head, Heart, and Gut, and the importance of balancing those three. In that moment, it sounded like you may have failed to acknowledge one of those areas. Which one do you think it, it was in making that decision? Yeah. I think it was a little gut and a little head, you know, in that, in terms of what I, what I may have ignored um, or what I did ignore it. I should just say it straight up. That book to me, although it, it doesn't need to be a, a cover to cover read, and it may be even a bit dated at this point. I haven't, I haven't read it for a while, but the concept relative to how it is imperative to employ one's head, heart, and gut in fairly equal proportions as a leader is a concept that I find super useful. And just as a frame, I'm a big fan of frameworks, <laughs> but as a frame, it's a great reminder. And thank you. Thank you, Jonna, for bringing it up because as I reflect on any number of mistakes that I have made in my career or in my life for that matter, I can usually boil it down to kind of having leaned too heavily on one of those things and not given kind of equal value to the three. So Lisa, I want to stay in, uh, you know, the theme of mistakes, right? Your personal mistakes and, you know, ask you to continue to be vulnerable. And I would love to hear how you think about, you know, cheap versus costly mistakes. And to start, I would love to hear, you know, a mistake that has cost you time, money, energy, effort, opportunity, pride, or in some cases, maybe all of the above, or even maybe cost you your identity. So if you can, costly mistake. It's interesting when I think about my costly mistakes, they all share a theme. And the theme is that in each of the situations, I have inadvertently given up my own personal power. Believing in the moment that I was doing the right thing, but then the consequence actually not um, getting to the outcome that I had intended. So an example that comes to mind, it comes from my days at Nike. I was given a role of global merchandising director. It was the company's first time to have this role in, in, in the company's history. And I was eager to do it. It was a role that in, in many ways, you know, I was made for given my background and it required a hell of a lot of kind of pioneering in all ways in terms of process and tools and communication and all of it. And it was a global scale. So it was pretty massive. In any event, I was a team of one in this brand new job and the demands were immense Given my work ethic, I kind of believed that, okay, I'm just, I'll work really hard. I can do this. I want to prove to the company that this is a, is a great role and that I am capable. And I was in over my head, but I just kept putting in the hours. And you guys, it was crazy. Like at a point in time, I kid you not, I think I was getting up at like 2.30 in the morning to try to get all my work done. And I asked my boss for help and he shut me down. And pretty much did not leave any room to ask again. Like he was 
we have no budget. No, that's not an option. And I kept working harder. Well, I did that for, I don't know, a few months. And the organization went through actually a reorg. The Nike brand went through a reorg. Through that reorg, my boss called me in and said, hey, this is actually the hardest conversation I am going to have all day. I've been dreading this conversation. And yet we are bringing in someone new that will you will be reporting to. In essence, you're being layered. I was devastated. I had put all of this time and energy into this job, believing that hard work, work would win the game, but it obviously didn't. And in hindsight, I realized that I had relinquished all of my power by not demanding help, by not being more innovative in how I would get the work done. And to be honest, actually, that, that layering ended up being a great thing because the guy that came in kind of didn't have the expertise that I did, but he had a lot of other things and kind of, you know, back to the notion, I suppose, of um, responsible mindset. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to play this to my benefit. So it all worked out. But I think sometimes, and in that, in this case, for me, we can be so caught up in the moment that we believe that we're doing the right things to get to the outcome when in fact the exact opposite is true. And, and that was an example for me. I think for me, what's the most, I guess, like disappointing part of that story is that I feel like it was actually a failure of your leader to not recognize that somebody on their team needed help, that you were vulnerable enough to come and admit that, hey, I'm struggling here. I need assistance. And there's also like a bit of gaslighting there too and saying like, no, this this isn't as bad as you think it is or you're not in as dire of a situation as you think you are. You need to go figure this out. So I, I see that as more of a, a mistake of your manager than a mistake on your part. But I appreciate the uh, the vulnerability. Sure. The flip side of that, you know, maybe a cheap mistake, something that you were able to learn indirectly from your teammates, your peers, your manager, whoever. Okay. So when I worked at The Gap, the CEO at the time was the retail legend by the name of Mickey Drexler. And Mickey uh, was is kind of famous for being the king merchant. He undoubtedly, you know, was one anyway of the keys when the gap was at its at its peak in the late 90s. That was because of Mickey. Anyway, we had a big annual store manager conferences that would be held in lots of different places, but one year it was held in Vegas. So we had a, a, a banquet one evening and Mickey was the keynote speaker, naturally, CEO of the company. And if you can imagine, you know, thousands of store managers amassed together in a massive conference room in Las Vegas, so eager to hear Mickey Drexler, the legend, speak, including myself. I mean, I knew Mickey, but it's always a, you know, generally it was a, a, a treat to hear him speak. You guys, it was a disaster. And to this day, I don't know what was wrong with him. Like, did he have too many glasses of wine? I don't know. But it was a total head scratcher. Like, what the – honestly, we were like, what the – what is he even saying? Anyway, you know, he was successful in his own right. He lived through that moment but boy, he didn't gain much credibility uh, for that particular event. So my takeaway is preparation matters. Even if you're the goat, like freaking prepare, cool. you know, it wouldn't have taken him that much to walk up there and crush, but it was kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. I love that takeaway. I think, you know, mantra that I, I've shared in Another episode is, you know, the mantra of if you fail to prepare, be prepared to fail. And it doesn't matter how big, how small, how great you are. Like you got to do your homework. You got to show up prepared for any interaction, any engagement. Uh, Dave? 100%. Always piss poor preparation promotes piss poor performance. Always. 
Yeah. And it can happen happen to anyone, right? It doesn't matter who you are. I think that's the other thing for me that was pivotal in that particular moment is this was this person that very much looked up to. And I think in my mind, I probably thought that he could have walked up on stage with no preparation and still crushed, but he didn't. And I'm curious to understand what are the common pitfalls that you see of leadership candidates that you interview? And what I mean by that, people that are managing teams, managing large organizations, what are the common pitfalls that you see when you interview candidates from that have that type of scope? Yeah. Two things in particular come to mind. And I'm actually I'm working on a CEO placement right now. So I find myself interviewing a lot of CEO candidates. The first thing is being clear on the why. Not necessarily for the position, although that's important too, but the combination of position and company. Now, that may be accentuated by the types of companies that I work with that are mission-oriented, but at the point that kind of one's credentials find them find them at a place that they're like already in a C-suite or ready for the C-suite or already a CEO or ready for the next CEO, like you're not so much focusing on the the pedigree, right? Like we know that in a glancing of LinkedIn. We know that by 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 reading the resume. It's more about the connection between okay, fine, you bring those skills, but what is it that is so deeply resonant in you that is going to motivate you to excel in this role at this company. And so for me, there's a lot about kind of the relational connection with candidates, not the transactional relationship with candidates. And I think, I mean, this is true at all levels, but uh, at times, you know, there's a difference in kind of, there's the practical preparation that goes into interviewing But equally important, in my opinion, is the grounded nature of intentions and one's ability to articulate and connect those things up. On the flip side of that, what are the, as this could be, you know, similar to your CEO search that you're running, conducting now, but what are the common themes that you see of successful interviews and successful candidates? Like, what do they bring to the table that you see? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the first thing is we, we've already mentioned playing loose. Just being one's authentic self is so critically important. Whether the candidate is a fit or not, I'd certainly rather figure that out in the first conversation, right? And so for candidates, having the confidence to show up as they are and to do that vetting, listen, we don't want to waste anyone's time. So to, to do that vetting process kind of quickly and efficiently, not by putting on airs, but rather being you and in the best version of you, of course, as it comes with, with preparation. But to me, that's critically important. I got some very good advice many years ago. I was interviewing for, for actually my job at Patagonia. And the person said to me, and, and certainly Patagonia is a values-based organization, so they, this may be particularly true at that company, but the person said to me, listen, you're not being interviewed for, for your skills. They know you can do the job. You're being interviewed for culture fit. So go be you, you know, do you, and let's see if it's a match. And I, I think that's very, very important for for actually all candidates and all interviewers for that matter. 100% agree. I'm sure John would would agree as well on on those points. Want to understand in your career and experience of interviewing yourself, what is the biggest fail that you felt that you feel that you've made in an interview? And what did you learn from that? All right. And to clarify, this is you as the candidate. Oh, me as a candidate. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Ah, ah, ah. All right, cool. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> okay, so I have a pretty quick but kind of important practice of grounding myself with, I'll call it a, med- loosely, I'll call it a meditation, but grounding myself before I go into conversations, like getting my head on right. 
And I had an interview for a board role this summer. It was actually my third interview for the board role, and I really wanted it. Was pleased that it had gotten to the third interview. And I was taking the interview not from my home, from another place. It was a little bit of a wonky situation with like weird internet. I had my dogs with me. I was, and I failed, like I was trying to like get organized to have the interview and I failed to do my quick grounding. And I I went into the interview and I, I'm actually kind of feel myself getting red thinking about it. Like it was terrible. No, I'm maybe being a little bit hard on myself, but listen, guys, I did not show up well. Like the, when she she asked me questions about leadership, and I don't know, like I review, I reverted to a child. I don't know, it was really weird. But bottom line, I was prepared. Like I knew the job, I knew the company, da, 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 but I wasn't grounded. So for me, the mental grounding to create the conditions. To share all that I know is super important. And in that particular situation, needless to say, I didn't get the job. I bombed it. Got it. Thank you for being vulnerable on that. I'm a big fan of the the bounce back stories. Me, myself, I've interviewed for a lot of different places and got rejected a lot. And I learned a lot from those stories. In that situation, when you got rejected, like what was your biggest takeaway? And I would love to hear other examples that you may have where you you went into an interview, you didn't necessarily get the job, but you took away a lot from that interview and learned from it. Sure. Well, I think I've already touched on what, you know, I was disappointed when I didn't get it. And yet the moment that I turned off the Zoom, I knew I wouldn't get it because I just, I realized in the moment it wasn't going well, but I couldn't kind of regain my footing in such a way to to get it straight. So, so yeah, I haven't let that happen again. But as soon as I got over the disappointment, it was then like, okay, so a couple things. One, part of my life as a free agent is, and making the most of a free agent is, one, knowing what to say no to to make the yeses more valuable. And in some ways, even though I wanted that role, I may have been kind of caught up in it because I actually, after I got over showing up poorly, I realized, oh, well, now I'm going to have bandwidth for something that I want even more. In any event, there have been other board roles that I have not gotten, not because I, I lacked the grounding, but rather because I didn't frankly have the exact kind of qualifications in terms of value add that that the team was looking for. And in board work, like any work, it's really, a, it's a matchmaking process, right? And I think in life, we have to be comfortable with the fact that it's not always a match. And that's a good thing because it's a mutual reconciliation process. And even though it doesn't feel good to not get something you think you want, well, do you, would you really want it if the fit wasn't there? So that's something that I am learning to become more comfortable with, right? Like in the case of interviewing, rejection can be a really good thing because if the match isn't right, move on. You know, we wouldn't want to marry someone that wasn't, wasn't a good match, right? Actually, I, so I love that answer. I appreciate that answer. And I think it ties back to another answer that you gave earlier about being your authentic self. And if something isn't the right fit, but you're trying to force fit yourself into this company, into this role, eventually you're going to come to that realization and you're going to realize that, you know, this, like I'm not showing up as my right, as my authentic self every day. Right. And you start to lose touch with our identity and it's going to go sour. So if you can recognize that up front and just say, you know what, I thought that this was a good match based on what, you know, my values are, what my beliefs are and what I can contribute. It's just not, it's not it. And to your point, right, it makes room for something that is a better fit, something that you are even more, I guess, passionate about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and just to maybe tease that out on the hiring manager side, we used to encounter this a lot, and I still encounter it today with founders, particularly in early stages where 
you know, maybe the hiring manager is super excited about a candidate and gets all the way to offer. And for whatever reason, the candidate doesn't accept the offer. And with startups, oftentimes that's about the comp package. You know, maybe it's the total rewards, the balance between cash and cash and stock isn't right or, you know, whatever. And at Stitch Fix in the early days, like we were pretty upfront. We, we paid 50% of market, which was not super compelling, but the upside on the stock was compelling. But many, many times my managers would come to me super disappointed because their candidate didn't accept. And on that side too, my answer to them was, well, they're not our people, right? Like if they if they don't see the upside in the company the way that we see the upside in the company, then the match isn't there. So anyway, it, go, it, it goes both ways. All right. All right. All right. Lisa, we're going to hop into the bonus round. I have some great questions for you. So the first is, Lisa, if you were a potato, how would you be prepared? Are you oh, a baked I- potato? Are you tater tots, fries? Cur- what are you? I have no idea why I'm going to say this, but I'm a crinkle potato chip. I don't know why I said that. Yeah. Like Ruffles. You're like Ruffles? Yeah, but maybe like the organic version. Okay, I respect that. Is there, yeah, yeah, is yeah there they, such they a have thing? rough organics. Okay. I think so. <laughs> Next question for you. So, who is the best coach in the Grayson family? Is it Tim? Is it Brett? Or is it yours truly? And you know what? I won't take offense if it's not me, but I, I got to ask. Spicy. Oh, my God. God, you're asking me to pick between children here. I'm going with Tim because you know what? He's a legend. He's a goat. He he is. He's and you know what? Without him, he wouldn't have created the two other Grayson coaches. So I'm going with Tim. Great answer. Great answer. Oh my gosh, that's 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 hilarious. I hope that's not the political answer, but if it is the political answer, it's a good choice. <laughs> no, uh, I mean it was really hard. It wasn't a political answer. He's but I don't ask I'm gonna ask my kids at the dinner table, I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. I'm right. actually curious to hear what Tucker's answer is. Oh, I'll get back to you. Yeah. Nice. My question, in your opinion, what is the toughest part about leadership? I think the toughest part about leadership is Creating the conditions to give one perspective to make the best decisions possible in the moment, big or small. Going back to this concept of you can't read the label when you're inside the jar. Great leaders get themselves out of the jar to create objective perspective and lead ahead of the curve. It's hard to do because when you're operating, you're swept into you know, the rigor of the day to day. But that practice of getting yourself out of it, I think, makes for great leadership. Love that. The year is 2045. Lisa is reflecting on her career and is thinking through all of the great things that she's done. What is Lisa most proud of at that time? The ability to have enriched and supported others in achieving their goals. Love that. Love that. Jono? I'm going to steal Dave's question of what did you learn from today's episode? I learned that in order for myself to get the most out of my mistakes, I myself shouldn't, you know, could benefit from not moving so quickly into like pay it forward opportunity, but actually sit just a tad longer with the mistake to make sure I kind of milk it for all that I can in terms of optimal learning. Love that. Love that. Shout outs. Shout out to your people, Lisa. Shout out to anyone that you feel contributed to your growth, success. The floor is yours. Who are, who are your shout outs? Okay. There are so many people, of course, but one person that hasn't come up in this conversation is my husband, Garen. He has made so much of my career possible. I'm getting emotional again. <laughs> my kids, my kids are like my most fierce providers of critical feedback meant with love. They make me better. The two most enduring mentors that I have in my professional life and personal life, but a woman by the name of Marka Hansen, 
I had the gift of, of her leadership directly in my early days at Gap. She's a dear friend of mine to this day. Also, my first boss at Nike, a guy by the name of Elliot Hill. He is an incredible leader in all ways. Charisma, plus, plus, plus. Inspiration, plus, plus, plus. Now doing things kind of similar to what I do, so we're able to compare notes in that way even today. There are so many people and I'll forget them. So I am going to go back to the beginning of the conversation and thank my grandmothers and my parents and to all those that I have had the, the privilege of leading. I've learned so much from the relationships that I've developed and continue to develop by nature of the intimacy of working you know, figuratively or literally shoulder to shoulder with people. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. And lastly... So we have a, a new segment, Scout's Honor. As a, a quick tribute to my dog, our dog, Scout, our little 10-month-old Rottweiler. So do you want to give any shirt furry shout-outs? Oh, my God. Okay. So we got a new puppy a week ago. First shout-out goes to little Daisy, four-month-old golden retriever. Second shout-out goes to Riley Bougie, a four-year-old golden retriever who is a total handful and makes life interesting every day. Well, Lisa, I guess, you know, on behalf of Dave and I, we just, we want to thank you for having, you know, the courage and humility to come on the show. We are absolutely honored to have you as a guest. Thank you. So fun. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate this podcast and, and we'll continue to follow it as a listener. <laughs>